0: Gave him my first break by putting me in a music video, and uh, that person just happened to be here tonight. Come on.
1: I
2: And we are back. Welcome to part two of our Scream 2 episode. But before we go into real talk, we are going to go into a, once again, brief patron pitch. a Brief PP. Uh, just so we can have a little bit more time to talk about the Livestream for the Cure, which, uh, depending on when this episode drops, either is about to happen or is currently happening. Or, if we uh, mess up our schedule, has already happened. <laughs> but let's hope for the best. But first... Our patron, patreon.com slash concernprime. That's where you find all our patron stuff. Uh lots of cool things. This month we're gonna have an exclusive bonus episode picked, demanded by patron Ben, Filmbusters Ben, who uh is making us watch the first two episodes of the new Sex in the City series. Alex, you just found out about this. Uh quick reaction. Why? <laughs> Well, I think the answer is is obvious. Alex, uh, Ben has been listening for a while. He knows your relationship with the with the franchise and uh he knows that you're not going to you, you've gone as far as to say that you wouldn't watch it unless somebody made you. So, he's making you. Fair enough. And me. And me. So, you know, here I am, caught in the crossfire. Just the first two episodes and then it would be pretty funny if that just inspired What's you What's it called to...
1: and then it happened
2: <laughs> and just like that.
1: And just like that.
2: And just like that, dot, dot, dot. Okay. So the first two episodes of that, we'll discuss that on our Patreon channel. And then, you know, we have our uh, cutting room floor stuff, our uh, pre-recording notes. And then Contrarians After Hours, which during the Friends Travaganza, it's actually closely tied to whatever episodes we're doing on the main feed. (laughs) This is the Corny Cox episode, so our after hours will be a discussion of a Corny Cox movie. Uh, In this case, it's Three Thousand Miles to Graceland, which neither of us has seen. Alex, are you excited for Three Thousand Miles to Graceland, or are you dreading
1: it? Oh no, I'm always at least somewhat interested in seeing a movie for the first time. Dreading it is not the expression. (laughs)
2: It's got a good cast, so if nothing else, we'll see (laughs) worst case scenario, we'll see good actors struggling with bad material. (laughs) We've done plenty of that before, oh yeah, also a Rock series uh it's it's peaking it's it's reaching the climax. We're discussing the the actual match and the documentary that followed about said match. It's uh, really exciting stuff,
1: <laughs> yes, some uh interesting fallout uh, just emotionally from Julio about the outcome of the match. <laughs>
2: <laughs> I was bamboozled. I was had. And then before we close, this abbreviated edition of uh, Patron Pitch, uh, we should welcome a brand new patron, Stephen Holbert. which, if, if I read the, the notification correctly, is uh, another Australian patron. Alex, our internationality, if that's a word, uh, continues to expand. Welcome, Stephen. Uh, hope you find what you're looking for. Tremendous. So that's that's the patron business. Patreon.com slash Contrarian Prime. Check it out. Join the contrarian Supplements.
1: Just a $1 subscription will get you access. We have other tiers you can check out, but $1, one George Washington will get you in. So head on over and check it out.
2: With patron business out of the way, on to the most uh, important part of this episode, which is our contribution to the Livestream for the Cure. And that is not because we're important, but because the cost is important. Uh, yes. Just raising money for uh, cancer research so the live stream for the cure runs from may 19th to may 21st a lot of uh awesome podcasters are going to be participating live streaming segments versions of their show uh live so if you if you tune in no, livestreamforthecure.com for the cure.com has all the information and uh, you can donate you can just participate uh, you can watch you can have it playing in the background uh, or you can you can be an active participant, depending on what's going on on the screen. Here's a promo for it, and then we're going to tell you what's going to happen on our segment.
0: Hello, everyone. My name is Nick, and I'm the host of the annual live stream for The Cure to raise money for the Cancer Research Institute. They research immunotherapy, which signifies the hope of a future immune to all forms of cancer. CRI is extremely accredited and highly rated, meaning 88 cents out of every dollar donated goes to actual research. This year, starting on May 19th at 9 a.m. Eastern Time, we're fighting for the sixth year in a row to raise money for this amazing organization and this important work. Livestream for the Cure is all about the power of the indie creator community, showing that even small creators can make a big difference. We're proud to continue working to raise money and awareness for the potential to treat all forms of cancer with immunotherapy. Together, we can make a difference. Learn more and make an early donation today at LivestreamForTheCure.com.
2: The wonderful Nick Haskins uh, planning this for the sixth year in a row now. Our segment, Alex and I are going to be doing the live stream on the 21st, the Saturday, the final day, 4 p.m. Central Time, 5 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. We'll be there for an hour. What we're going to be doing is not an actual Contrarians episode like we've done on previous years. This time we're going to be playing a little game of, uh, I don't know, mini Contrarians pitches. The way it goes, Alex, I'm telling you like you don't know this, but uh, (laughs) the way it goes is members of the audience are going to throw titles at us and we are going to give them mini versions of what we do with those titles if they were to be featured on our show uh, now so they don't throw every title under the sun at us we're actually narrowing down the scope to titles belonging to the filmographies of Kate Winslet Cameron Diaz Denzel Washington and Robert De Niro so any movies that are on those uh, actors' IMDb pages, Wikipedia pages. You can throw at us uh, along with their Rotten Tomato score, and we'll uh, we'll give it a concerned treatment. Just in like, I don't know, a minute, two
1: minutes, abbreviated, punchy. Basically, we'll give an outline of what a full episode would look like if we did that movie.
2: Yes, this is where we do the Josh Gad reference. This is where uh, Alex <laughs> Alex gets mad because I said something disparaging about. Practical effects. <laughs>
1: this, this is, is where, where I, him... we get into an argument about Marvel for no reason. <laughs> yes,
2: <laughs> this is where Alex takes it, makes a dig at Marvel. Uh, now, as as we do this, ideally, people are going to be donating money, and uh, we have goals, or tiered goals, like we've had in past years, uh, and they're related to to the four actors that uh, we'll be covering. During our segment. So, if we hit $50 in donations, we are committing to doing an episode on the main feed for the movie Labor Day, a Kate Winslet uh, romantic thriller directed by the same guy that directed Juno and Up in the Air. How the Mighty Fell. (laughs) If we hit $100 in donations, that's the Cameron Diaz tier, and we'll be doing Being John Malkovich on the show. That's a fresh movie. Labor Day was rotten. Uh, Then we go back to rotten for our $150 tier. We hit $150. uh, That's the Denzel tier. And we're doing The Bone Collector. The thriller with Angelina Jolie. And then finally, The Big Cheese. We hit $200 in donations. That's a Robert De Niro tier. And we do Goodfellas. Marty Scorsese being dragged back into the Contrarian studio to defend this gangster saga that's Allegedly better than any superhero movie has ever been. We'll see. <laughs> all you have to do is pull your resources, get all your buddies to donate uh, altogether about $200 or more during our segment, and uh, we promise you, you'll have a Good Fellas episode on the main feed uh, that will be discussed forever and ever. It'll be part of our legacy. So that's it. Live stream for The Cure. Go, runs, again, from the from May 19th to May 21st. And our segment is May 21st, 4 p.m. Central, 5 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Be there, even if you can't donate. Just be there to play along, to boost the numbers so that uh, we get more exposure. And just to keep us from being just guys that are broadcasting a segment that nobody's listening to.
1: Yes, that, I mean, that would be uh, preferable.
2: <laughs> yes. I mean, don't get me wrong. We're going to be having fun anyway. But it's, it's a lot more fun when there's people around. And now... Alex, I think it's time to go into real talk.
0: I'm not here to do your job, Miss Salt. What about this ex-cop Dewey Riley? It's kind of strange that he showed up. Yeah, what's he doing here?
1: Dewey's a good guy. Unlike some of us. Completely forgot to mention that Rebecca Gayhart is in this. as a yes. small part.
2: And uh, Portia De Rossi.
1: What I did not know is that Rebecca Gayhart was married to Brett Ratner at this point in time. We may have talked about that before when we... I think I
2: mentioned it during our uh Jawbreaker. I don't know if I mentioned it during the recording. I might have told you when we're not recording that he uh he talks about it in the special features for the first rush hour, I think. Holy Man.
1: shit. Rebecca Gayhart was Cliff Booth's wife in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. She only has that one small scene where he like you know, it's implied he kills her, but that's wild. I didn't know that was just Tarantino doing all kinds of crazy shit with that movie, man. Like you know, Danielle Harris is in that movie too.
2: Dakota Johnson? No, not Dakota Johnson. Fanning.
1: Dakota Fanning.
2: Dakota Fanning. Yeah. Timothy, Timothy Dunham, Oliphant. Un-
1: unfor- unfortunately, but yes, Timothy Oliphant, the Scream Two reunion.
2: <laughs> Imagine just Oliphant and uh, and Gayhart running to each other at the at the catering. Hey, I haven't seen you since. <laughs> Ninety 97? ninety seven. Ninety ninety seven. Yeah. Hey. How's it going?
1: Twenty years.
2: What's up? How, how's there?
1: <laughs> All right, Julio. So second screen we've covered on here, eighty-one percent. Uh so like we said, that qualifies as fresh for us. Uh what um were some of the cynics saying about this one?
2: All right. A few green splotches from the own tomatoes website negative quotes starting with ted priggy from rec arts movies reviews who says scream 2 wishes it were as cool as the original true or false alex true <laughs> more true with every rewatch
1: yeah i don't know what it is but like uh kind of jumping a little bit ahead i gave it three stars when i put it on letterbox today because i feel it's that it's But every time I watch it, I like it less and less. And especially every time I rewatch it, I find myself uh, like Eddie and uh, some of my other friends, horror movie fans, that just hold this in such high regard. I I just find myself more and more baffled by.
2: Well, you're baffled right there with Ted Prigge. Uh, And also next to Ian Mangani from UK critic who says too serious to be funny and too lighthearted to be scary. Some of the characters in it talk about how sequels are inferior products and the movie they're in doesn't prove them wrong.
1: Uh, Not in the way he said it, but I think there is something to the first one is scary and the second one's not the ness becoming too much.
2: I I don't think this movie is ever too serious to be funny. No, there's nothing serious in this movie.
1: The first uh, one at least had like fucking Sydney's mom dying and like her reflecting upon that. And the first, yeah, the first one didn't try as hard to be so cute and <laughs> clever. But then there was shit in it that was still funny. Just like Matthew Lillard, even up until his, like he dies in that movie, he's funny, and it's not like it doesn't feel forced. I don't take your
2: word for it. <laughs> now I remember enough.
1: What does that mean? Why Why don't you watch that movie regularly? Like, I watch that movie at least, like, twice a year. Why, why don't you do that?
2: Because there are other movies that I haven't seen that I want to watch. Like, Spencer.
1: <laughs> that excuse is only going to get you so far. After you actually watch <laughs> Spencer, you're going to have to start watching other shit.
2: <laughs> I have to fucking plow through Charlie's Angels and Charlie's Angels Full Throttle this week. So...
1: Uh, Yeah, can sympathize with that. We signed up for that, not understanding all it entailed. Yeah.
2: Felix Vasquez Jr. from Cinema Crazed says, a bland, limp sequel that fails to follow the act of the charismatic first film. Is it going too far? Bland and limp sequel?
1: Yeah, I don't know why I have to pull out limp for that. But...
2: <laughs> He's uh, taking a shot at uh, Arquette.
1: It's, I mean, it's bland in the sense that it's all white, but it's not... <laughs> They try some things.
2: Yeah. And finally, uh, Widget Walls from neatcoffee.com says, it managed to take what started out as an interesting franchise and ruin it. Did this movie ruin the franchise, Alex? Because it went on for three more movies and a TV show.
1: Yeah, I don't think anyone that uh, has much of a vested stake in this franchise has eaten pork and beans anytime soon. <laughs> so I'd have a hard time saying <laughs> Damn, you scream too. <laughs> yeah, for real. <laughs> because... As we mentioned, released on December 12, 1997, had a budget of $24 million with a box office return of a little over $172 million. Now, we compare that to the uh, around $14, $15 million budget of Scream 1. I don't think the effects or much of anything else changed. It's just in that year's time, Courtney Cox, David Arquette, Nev Campbell, and God bless his heart, uh, Jamie Kennedy, were like, hey... <laughs> pay us more uh this made just a smidge under what the original pulled in with 173 million going to the first
2: do you think leave schreiber got paid more (laughs) in this movie
1: i would fucking hope so (laughs) i was just looking at what the with inflation factor 172 million is uh, close to 308 million today i could see someone trying to make something out of The fact that it made not considerably but just a you know a scotch a hair less than the original but as was called out in the first half of this Titanic came out seven days after this movie for a movie to succeed at that level 172 million dollars in the era of Titanic I mean that's admirable and should be commended and obviously it was because they made three more after this so Julio, that is one part of scream 2 that if i knew completely left my mind that it came out that close to titanic what an odd box office it was at that point in time (laughs) embarrassment of riches some would say
2: i i wouldn't go that far (laughs) unless you're talking about the profits for cameron and craven
1: yeah i meant in the sense of just like people going to the movie theater and just absolute droves it's ridiculous how many
2: screens did Titanic have? 20?
1: Well, back in those days when we lived in a fair society and a, <laughs> a just society, what would it have been? It'd probably been three or four at like the big theaters, don't you think? Yeah. Yeah.
2: It's like a three hour long movie. So that's
1: the thing. Yeah. They would have to take up more theaters because of the, the amount of show times they needed. <laughs> Okay, sperm donor number 03815. Come on down. Okay, 6'2, 170 pounds, and he describes himself as a male Gina Davis.
0: You mean there's more than one of us? <laughs> you can't do this, Mom. Alright, if you do this, I'm I'm gonna I'm, I'm you're gonna, gonna what? I'm gonna tell mom. Hey, I'm sorry, but he's right. I love you, but you're crazy. Crazy. What? Why? Why is this crazy? So this isn't the ideal way to do oh, something. Oh, it's not the ideal way? Lips moving, still talking. <laughs> it may not be
1: ideal, but I'm so ready. You know, I, I see the way Ben
0: looks at you. It, it, it makes me ache, you know?
1: Being that this is the Friends Stravaganza, this brings us to, as we mentioned, Monica Geller, Courtney Cox, Gale Weathers in this one, as we had done in our previous episode, and we will continue to do so throughout the Friends Stravaganza. We want to put it back in a place in time for any and all friends, aficionados. So the night before scream two was released on December 11th of 1997, the premiere of the one where they're going to party premiered seen by just shy of 24 million Americans, <laughs> Monica and Phoebe by a tacky van for their new catering business, But plans are upended when Monica is offered the head chef job at Alessandro's, a restaurant that she recently trashed in a review for a neighborhood paper. Rachel applies for an assistant buyer job in another Bloomingdale's department, only to be sabotaged during the interview by her boss, Joanne, who wants to keep Rachel as her assistant. Rachel confronts Joanna, who then offers to make her assistant buyer in her department. Unfortunately, Joanna meets an untimely end before Rachel's promotion takes effect. Ross and Chandler are excited when their friend Mike Gandalf Ganderson is coming to town to party all night. When Gandalf cancels at the last minute, Joey says they can still have a great time, though the guys get beaten down before the night's end. It's
2: one of the most relatable episodes of Friends as you get older. (laughs) Because I think it's like... The, the button of that subplot or like the end, is just like, it's 9 p.m. And they're like, yeah, yeah, party. But they sit down and they just can't get up. I feel that. Yep, me too. Uh, I've seen this. I, uh, I My fun trivia fact is that uh, Rachel's friend Joanna, Ra- Rachel's boss Joanna, before she dies in previous episodes, she actually, there's an episode where she dates Chandler. They, they go on a date. I think Rachel sets them up and then Chandler... Uh, doesn't like her, doesn't like the boss, but he can't bring himself to not tell her, "Hey, I'll see you again sometime." You know, be nice and and kind of set up a new date before. So, so he keeps dating her even though he hates it, and he tries to ghost her. But Rachel, yeah, (laughs) but you know, he he tries to ghost her because that's his move. But Rachel's like, "You can't ghost her because she's my boss," and she keeps asking me about you and. uh, you know, at the end of that episode, she basically forces Chandler to be honest with, with Joanna and tell her that he actually doesn't enjoy going out with her. And Joanna, surprisingly, thanks him for his honesty. And then <laughs> Chandler is like, okay, great. And then as he's walking away, he can't help himself. and He goes like, well, that was great. I'll see you again some other time. I'll give you a call or something. <laughs> he does what he'd been doing before. It's funny. Friends can be a funny show. Uh, but, yeah, Monica, she... She takes a job, if I remember correctly. This is the beginning of uh, Monica being head chef at that restaurant. It goes on for the whole season, I think. Do you remember this era of Friends?
1: I'm sure I've seen episodes of it, but it's not like other TV shows. It's not like Seinfeld, where I can picture eras of the show in my head.
2: <laughs> There's no eras in Seinfeld. It's what always the fuck the same. are you
1: talking about?
2: Okay, give me the, the Seinfeld eras.
1: It's usually depending on uh, Elaine's hair. Like, there's the bun, <laughs> there's the down, there's to the oh, side.
2: Okay. So, we're going by looks. I was talking about, like, stages in the character's life. Defi-
1: oh, well, there's definitely errors, just like there is in Friends, of like, they try to give, like, Kramer some, like, sense of humanity in the first two or three seasons. <laughs> and then he just becomes, like, you know, an absolute maniac, like that type of thing. It's like any show, and they're trying to find their footing and figure it out. Uh, Yeah, like the early seasons of Seinfeld when they they think maybe, you know, Jerry Seinfeld should like try to act. And then, you know, (laughs) the show goes on. It's like, nah, why would we do that?
2: Oh, yeah. This is the era where we still put some of his stand up in between the commercial breaks.
1: Yeah, exactly. Nah, but I'm sure I've seen this uh, era of Friends just through reruns and whatnot. It's really interesting to me, too, for how much of like a big family show that, well, it was kind of targeted more towards adults, but it didn't shy away from. You know, being marketed in some aspects as like the it show for everybody. And so, like last week, we talked about, you know, uh, the TV spots during commercial breaks for Lost in Space. And it just fascinates me, you know, uh, the year before it was TV spots for Scream 2. And I imagine since Friends started in 94 and the first Scream was 96, I imagine they, promoted it pretty heavily too. see what i've always thought about this and i don't care enough about this to read into it so if i'm saying something that's historically disproven i apologize but i always got the feeling that like courtney cox took the first scream because friends still hadn't like become the fucking supernova that it would become and was playing both fields and they both worked out So it's just like, (laughs) how awesome is that? Because so rarely does that type of shit happen where you hear all these stories, you know, being in the horror genre for this episode. Sean Cunningham, the guy who did Friday the 13th, took it to make money to fund this sitcom he wanted to do. And the sitcom never got picked up. And Friday the 13th is going to put his grandkids through college. (laughs) And so... You hear of stories of like so- one thing working, one and not. In this case, her name is attached to two like franchises that just consistently make bank, uh, even to this day, just in circulation and shit. So God bless her for getting the bag.
2: I mean, I guess she she did it in a way that I think none of the other friends did, right? No, There's nobody no. else in that cast that's attached to anything other than Friends, as for, as far as big money makers.
1: And we'll talk about it more when we get to it. Jennifer Aniston definitely has the the deepest in terms of her filmography, but there's not anything like she's connected to. Whereas, you know, just like this, Courtney Cox can do conventions for Scream or Friends. I guess that's the best way to put it. Any of the other actors on the show, I'm not saying they're going to be doing conventions anytime soon, but any of the uh, other people on the show would just be showing up as their Friends character. It is interesting, though, that from a visual perspective, there seemed to be a conscious effort to make her look Different than Monica, you know what I mean?
2: Yeah, I can see that. I I don't think that they succeed. I mean, yes, visually she is, she doesn't look like Monica, but I stand by what is said in Contreras Corner. I don't think that the character is too different or or too uh, too much of a departure from what you see in the, you know, in the show in Friends. I'm trying to think of other uh, – okay, even going back to Ace Ventura, I think that her character in Ace Ventura, from what I remember, <laughs> is more different from Monica than Gail Weathers is. Because Ace Ventura, isn't she just kind of a – she's pretty mild-mannered. She's just – because, you know, she's she's playing the the straight woman to, to Jim Carrey's crazy detective.
1: There's really – I don't remember there being much of anything to her character is the main thing. Yes. Yeah, <laughs> I agree <laughs> but that's the thing
2: you know monica usually she commands the screen i don't and- know
1: why i'm trying to argue with this about you you would know way more about this than me i just feel the need to fucking <laughs> argue with you every chance i get so take it <laughs> take it away tell me what monica is like
2: i i mean i i really i said in the first corner i think that she is they're both like they have strong personalities they're they're very determined they uh they being gail and monica and, they can be, uh, kind of uptight, like mistaken as the, the person that's not fun in the group. I mean, I'm going from what I remember of Scream 1, what I remember from Scream 4, and what I just saw in Scream 2. Like, I think that Gail kind of fits that, only that Gail, Gail is, uh, much more unpleasant version of, of Monica. Like, Monica's not devious the way that Gail is, but, the way they talk and uh, and I think that the the confidence they have in themselves, that's it's pretty similar. I think it's also that I'm just you know we're we're this coming on the heels of the Lost in Space episode, which was memorable in the way that it just forced Matt LeBlanc into places that clearly he was not comfortable, uh you know, with. This was not Joey, and it didn't work. Whereas like. Here, Gale is kind of like Monica, and it works really well because, because I, I think it does. I do you do you agree that uh, she's good, like that she's one of the strong parts of the movie, her performance, that is.
1: Yeah, I agree with that. I think one of the strongest, if not the strongest, carryover from a character progression standpoint from the first one to the second one is the Gale character. Because in the first one, she's kind of conniving uh, as a you know, in a cutthroat journalist, but. Uh, we'll still kind of politic you and good brother you're to your face. And this one, she's just like an upfront bitch to everybody and, you know, <laughs> gets what she wants and, you know, is successful at it. So I feel her character, the way she acts in this one where we left off in the first movie makes the most sense of any of the characters. I guess maybe Randy, but you know what I mean?
2: Yeah. Yeah. She has now that we're in real talk, I I really like her relationship with Dewey. I don't oh, yeah. know. I don't know that I buy it and I think that I I that's one of the things where I really need to rewatch the first one to to truly appreciate that connection they have because not having that fresh in my mind this felt a little like I like I'm like, "Really?" <laughs> because they're so different and I I just had trouble at first kind of like buying that she would uh, care. But then once I convinced myself that it made sense, I'm like, okay, this has to make sense. I'm sure it makes sense factoring in the first movie. Uh, I had a lot of fun with it. I, I Because it really makes her human. It just gives her that new layer. You can see that she... The way that she talks to him, the way that she interacts with him is unlike any of her other interactions in the movie. So that is definitely my favorite aspect of the movie. You mentioned it in the Contreras Corner, actually, and uh I forgot to like ask you a follow up, but you said that uh, David Arquette's performance in this one is different from what he was doing in the first one. Yes, you're gonna have to explain because I don't remember much from the first one in that in that sense.
1: It bothers me that you're not able to just like cite scream like <laughs> <laughs> I honestly think more than it, you know we've been doing this a long time now, and I think. More than any other movie that I've tried to reference, and you just don't pick up on or don't have the knowledge for, I think this one bothers me the most. So I
2: know who Dewey is, and I know. No, 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 no.
1: no. I mean, like, I feel we should be able to have. Like a deep conversation about the first scream right now, if we wanted to. And the fact that we can't, I don't know why it's troubling me so much. Maybe it's just late and, you know, I'm testy, but it's really bothering me. So I would ask after you watch Spencer to please revisit the first scream. You have Peacock. There's an HD remaster of it on there, I believe. There was last time I I checked. Anyway, Dewey in the first one. Is this like eager to please everybody, yet still prove? You know, I'm I'm a tough guy because you know he's a cop in that, and there's like there's that part where he comes like running out of his room with his gun, and he's just you know he still lives at home though, and he's a fucking he's a dork, uh, but he still tries to like uphold the law, and I think the biggest thing in this is in the first one he puts himself in front of way more people he puts himself in way more lines of danger in terms of like trying to protect others and this when he just gets caught up it's cuz he's you know trying to fuck gale so it's <laughs> to me he seems like on the outside just like he's trying to make sense of it but he doesn't want to get too involved and i think that's an interesting character progression as well he got super involved last time and it ended up with him getting stabbed in the back. So he wants to, you know, take a few steps back. <laughs> he still ends up getting stabbed in the back. <laughs> Poor Ahemplo, the scene with him and Randy in the Baskin Robbins, which product placement aside, it is hilarious. C- could you notice that? Like how obvious it was?
2: Yes, I did. Okay. I, I thought it was great.
1: God bless. Th- there's, You don't really get anything like that from Dewey in the first one. Where he's like analytical and trying to make up his mind and shit. The first one, he just kind of jumps to conclusions or, you know, just takes what everyone else feeds him. It's so good. That's probably my favorite scene in the movie when Randy's explaining everything to him. And he'll do that thing where he like leans forward and he's just like, well, What do you think <laughs> about this? And then he leans back. And I love when he's like, Well, what about you? And he says, Well, if I'm a suspect, you're a suspect. And David Arquette goes, You got a point. Tell me more about it. And then he just kind of moves on to the next one. <laughs> and, you know, we've talked about David Arquette numerous times on here. Never been kissed, ready to rumble, et cetera, et cetera. The comedy he became known for is, in that era at least, is, ah, David Arquette. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. I don't know why it tickled me so much this time, but just his kind of facial expressions and the way he engages in the conversation with uh, Jamie Kennedy is really good here. I know that was a a long answer to your short question, but the the long and skinny of it is basically he's way more out front and he's the person to jump in front of someone in the first one. In this one, he's way more methodical and mental like in, in his thoughts about what's going on and not as quick to jump in the line of battle, which, like I said, is funny in the end because he still gets hurt anyway.
2: Uh, more so than rewatching Scream, I wish I had re-listened uh, or Scream Four episode because I don't want to repeat myself. Uh, I thought
1: about that too, but like I honestly have a hard time going back and listening to those early episodes, just from like
2: we've come so far.
1: It's the type of thing of like when we edit these, you and I are both kind of perfectionists, like, or at least in the sense of I mean, someone could listen to this and think it fucking sucks. So there's nothing perfect about it. But what I mean by that is like. You and I have a certain place we like to get our episodes now. You know what I mean. Mm-hmm, yeah. And back then we were just kind of like, uh, I think this is what you do. <laughs> and like I went back not too long ago to, I was gonna compare our Ready to Rumble episode with someone else's, and I was listening to it. I was like, Oh man, can't do it. <laughs>
2: <laughs> We've come a long way, Alex. That's that's all I'll say. I can still, well, I don't know. I haven't listened to one of the really early ones in a while. Uh, but I think if I get myself in the right mindset, I, I can enjoy yeah. it still. I guess in like a nostalgia kind of thing, like, oh, remember how young we were? <laughs>
1: <laughs> but, uh, yeah, not to cut you off. So you were saying you didn't want to repeat yourself, but um, well, yeah, because
2: I, I kind of have a feeling that I probably asked you this back then. But you know what? It's been so long that and, and we're different people basically now. So maybe you would give me a different answer anyway. But so, who is your favorite character in the franchise?
1: I think you go through the most with Dewey and uh, Gale. I mean, it's so cliche to say Sydney, but I th- I don't know. See, like this is where I get all like weird and nerdy about it. I think my single. Favorite performance in the franchise is Matthew Lillard in the first one, but obviously he does like that character doesn't carry over. The problem with Nev Campbell is, like I said in this, and like we, I I can't tell how much of it you were being truthful. Oh, I was
2: a hundred percent serious. Okay, (laughs) like I like her, like I get it, but I'm also like, man, there is nothing going on here. It's just, uh, I, I get it. I understand why people like her because she's a badass, and there is something appealing about seeing. A, a woman that would normally be cast as a victim, just cowering, you know, screaming as she runs away from the killer to actually stand up to them and challenge them and, and prevail. And that's cool. But it's also kind of, I don't know, I just don't find it as, as engaging. I don't know. She seems almost flippant about it, about the tragedies during this movie. I, I was like, man, I, I really, I think that everybody in the supporting cast is more interesting than her
1: agreed and I mentioned it in the first half too I think it's four I can't remember if they do this in three at all but what and I'm not saying either those are like great movies but the idea of that character it should be that thing of like I'm the problem I'm cursed and you know all these people get close to me and die that type of thing that becomes interesting and dealing with tragedy and whatnot some people were turned off by the what we talked about the Jamie Lee Curtis and In uh, the most recent Halloween, where she becomes just, like, this crazy bomb shelter woman. Mm -hmm. Uh, But it adds interest to it. I think one of the few positive things I said about H2O is the direction they try to take her character, which was at her request. Like, I would have trauma from what happened here. So, like, her the drinking and shit like that makes that interesting. Here, and again, the character's supposed to be young. And when you're young, you're able to compartmentalize things and just kind of facilitate and eliminate them a little bit better at the same time <laughs> you would you would think you know all your friends were killed and you were, because of you you were the plot of this huge murder thing you think it would affect you more This just I'm, I'm dating Jerry O'Connell life's good
0: <laughs> I want
2: to be an actress <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah you know I would actually enjoy it more I think she would be fascinating if they double down on on that aspect of the character, the whole like, yeah, this happened, but I don't care. I'm moving on. And if she was even more unflappable about the whole thing, because there's a couple moments here where she, she actually has, this, she makes a quip at a, at very like tense times. Like I, I actually laughed when uh, Sheldon's mom has her, you know, sh- she has the knife to her throat and then cotton weary arrives to save the day. And he has the gun, Pointed at them and, uh, he's like, who the fuck is this? And then Sydney goes like, Cotton, meet Billy's mother. I think that's what she says. But the way she says it, it's like so matter of fact. And I'm like, okay, well, if you're gonna, if you took the character in this direction, this whole thing of like, I've seen so much that nothing affects me, I would actually be a lot more into it than the way it is here, where it's almost like, oh, she's just a normal girl. (laughs) She's still, yeah. She's still one of us because that I I just don't find as interesting.
1: I I would agree with that. You mentioned Cotton, and I think he might be the most realistic character in this. <laughs> His mood swings are obviously erratic, but and he he just gets away with murder, uh, literally after. <laughs> and you have not seen three, right?
2: I, I know that he he dies like in the
1: opening, but do you know like what he becomes and stuff.
2: No, no, that I don't know.
1: Okay. He's like, Maury, he has like a talk show and he's, (laughs) that's the best part of three. That might be one of the best openings in the franchise. I mean, it's five movies, but you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Has the relatable aspect of like, if I was sent to prison for murder (laughs) and I didn't do it, I would want the world to know I didn't do it. So I get that. And then, I get this, and I kind of just enjoy the thing of, like, he doesn't care it's happening again. He just wants his name cleared, and it's driving him crazy. Like, he's becoming the I'm not crazy, everyone else is crazy. And and then in the end, I think it... uh, I don't know if I would have had him save the day, but I I like how it all kind of works out for him. Because in the end, all he did was, you know, bust a nut. He didn't kill anybody. (laughs)
2: But see, he's someone that seems very affected by what happened in the previous movie. He's the opposite of Sydney.
1: Yeah, and I was trying to think if there would be any weight to what I said just a minute ago, if their thought was like, well, she's a college student, so she'll just forget it. So let's like write it like it's normal. But then again, that would just be kind of lazy writing. Uh, so don't want to reward that per se. You didn't
2: answer the question then. Can you settle on, on somebody as your favorite character?
1: Not really. I I was gonna say cotton uh just a minute ago, and then that's why I brought up three, because he dies in the, the opening of three. I think he has an interesting arc, and it definitely the first time I saw three, I was like, whoa, no, believe. <laughs> I guess the way the Sydney character progresses is my favorite, but I, I really don't like what the in between part is. And like four it does feel silly that Dewey's just a cop again after everything. So I think there's aspects of all these characters I like from different movies, but I'm honestly not sure I could put a pin on one and say that's my favorite besides uh, Cotton.
2: I'm going to go with the the very vanilla basic answer. I, I, I think Randy is my favorite. And granted, I haven't seen three. I don't remember much of four, but I remember a lot about Randy. And I thought that he was the most consistently entertaining part of two he dies yeah. in this one. I know. I was really, but but you know, th- he has his video in the third one, right?
1: Oh yeah, they they. I <laughs> it's like David Arquette's like, I found something, and they sit down and he starts <laughs> it. And he's like, if you're watching this, it means I'm dead. <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah, I was so bummed when they killed him. You know, because it's halfway through the movie, so you know that the next half doesn't have Randy, and that that sucks because I I find him. Uh, I find his dialogue pretty entertaining. I like that his personality is entertaining. I like the fact that he is a guy that openly acknowledges that he's been crushing on Sydney since the first movie and yet nothing comes of it. <laughs> you know, she's with Jerry O'Connell. Because the way that they set it up, you know, when he says it's early I think it's his first scene when they're like, What would you change uh, in a sequel or what's what's the good thing in a sequel? And he goes like, Oh, I'd make the, the geek get the girl. And you're thinking, oh, so is this going to lead somewhere between him and Sydney? But no, it doesn't. You know? But as a character moment, I liked it. I don't know. I mean, you know, I'm a sucker for somebody... For a well-placed movie reference, I think that, that is, that's the thing, that you could... This character could be so annoying, and instead, it's that, that the perfect merging of the writing and Jamie Kennedy's performance. I mean, is this just, like, the ideal role for him? Is this... Is this it for Jamie Kennedy? I, I I know I'm not familiar. Yeah, clearly this was it. I mean, he's still around, but oh, I, don't yeah, think, yeah. <laughs> I don't think I've ever seen him in anything as high profile and as well suited, in my opinion, for his for his talents. Like whatever, it, it, it's like he found a way to connect to the character of Randy in a way that I just haven't seen him, you know, do anywhere else.
1: Yeah, he had like a, a good amount of movies that he made. Uh, he was in Boiler Room um, before the first scream that Boz Lerman, Romeo and Juliet, and uh, fuck, what was it? He had some comedy that people like. It, it was one of those early two thousands white rapper type things, and um, he had uh, one of the first prank shows. So he he definitely had got his fingers into a lot of pies in the entertainment industry. But to your point. For me and for you, and I think a lot of people that would agree with us, this was just like the stars, you know, all the planets aligned for him uh, because it's he's just perfect in this role because you believe it's one of those roles where you hear these words coming out of his mouth and you believe that's what it would be like to really talk to that guy. Mm -hmm.
2: It's a bummer that he dies.
1: (laughs) It is, but it's easily the most ballsy thing this movie does, and I respect it for that.
2: Yes, yeah. I imagine he was a fan favorite, right? Like, you wouldn't have expected that to happen. I appreciate it, even as I dislike it.
1: Jerry O'Connell sucks.
2: Jerry O'Connell. <laughs> uh, not like we secondary in Corner. It's not like his uh, cameo in Can't Hardly Wait.
1: It's not his fault, though. Just as it, the character has, like, no legs.
2: Yeah. Uh, he can't sing. But yeah. I don't know if that's that's on purpose. Like, oh, is the joke? Is it supposed to be endearing that his character can't sing, or is it just that this is Jerry O'Connell? It's the the uh, bachelorette question. You know, is Adam Scott really bad at singing, or is he singing badly on purpose at the end?
1: That's a, that's a throwback right there. <laughs> uh, yeah, again, I cut you off, Hulu. Really. I just wanted to get out that I'd, Jerry O'Connell seems like a good dude. Just it, and we know he's a good actor just from his moment in the sun and uh can't hardly wait but yeah i mean get I, that can,
2: I can see the rationale of saying well sydney you can go two ways two ways that would be dramatically interesting maybe it's like you either have her date somebody that's like billy and you're like oh man she has a thing for bad boys or you have her date someone that's the complete opposite of billy which would be <laughs> jerry o'connell right he's just yeah medical student goody two shoes she he's not dark and brooding like like billy was see i remember that about the first one fucking Skid ulrich the next johnny depp trying to force uh sydney to have sex you know there's there's none of that here uh, or i no. guess they could have had her be single maybe that wouldn't have been as interesting maybe i don't, know. I don't think that o'connell is as interesting anyway but um yeah, it's not his fault. It just doesn't... They don't give him anything to do. They, it's such a bummer that they make him a suspect. Because like I said on Dress Corner, I think that when they make him a suspect, that, that means that there's only so much they can give us with him. Because otherwise they'll yeah. tip their hand and show you that he's not the guy. So now, O'Connell, no, no, thank you. Uh, Oly Fantastic <laughs> is good. Is he? I, I think... Oh, no, okay, no. Okay. <laughs> Allow me to elaborate. <laughs> Specify. Thank He's good until he's revealed as the killer then he is atrocious. But I think that that's the the script, and that is Wes Craven encouraging this type of performance from him. Yeah. (laughs) Because, like I said, I know, we we both know, the the world knows at this point, that he can be a very restrained (laughs) and effective actor. Like, six seasons of Justified, you know, just shows you that he, he can handle dialogue. And granted, you know, it's... Raylan Givens never gets the kind of monologues that uh, what's his name in this movie? Michael, Mickey, Mickey, Mickey. Yeah, that Mickey gets in this movie. But still, you know, it's like Timothy Oliphant is so much better than what he does in the climax of this movie. But before then, I thought he was cool. Like I thought that as a as a new addition to the cast, he is definitely far more memorable than uh, Sydney's new roommate, for example.
1: Who? Oh yeah,
2: just like pfft, I got nothing there. She makes even less of an impression than Jerry O'Connell. So I like them, uh, and then I didn't at the end.
1: I okay, yeah. I thought that's when you said he was good. I thought you meant like everything, and I was like, okay, hold on, no, but yeah, like in the film class, and like when he has that little interaction with Randy at the party, was like Empire Strikes Back. Like he just <laughs> has like a kind of cool delivery and everything. Yeah. So yeah, yeah, I'm behind that. Uh, but yeah, at the end, it's just like. Watch uh, Robert Downey Jr. in Natural Born (laughs) Killers and then just take away the accent. (laughs) Julio, what if I told you that that role was offered to Tobey Maguire?
2: (laughs) And then they're like, too obvious. Of course he's the killer.
1: Oh, yeah, with his glasses and his his hair slicked to the side. (laughs) You know, the closer we get to today... From the movies we do and especially you know speaking to horror movies we always hear the horror stories of like the mpaa sending it back over and over again uh and i don't know of too many contemporaneous films that had the scream 2 thing of it had to be cut eight times to get an r rating um so i'm curious of because it's not one of these movies like entrails are just falling out and, you know, ridiculous shit like that. So I'm curious what it was that they were just like, cut back on that.
2: Well, the stabbings can be pretty graphic, even though you don't get to see much. You know,
1: I honestly think one of those cuts was the roommate getting stabbed because you don't you know talk about. You just see Nev Campbell's face and you hear it mm-hmm. like. Oh, yeah. So they were like, you can't show Buffy dying. Cut that. <laughs> we need that money. I
2: mean, uh, Omar Epps gets
1: it bad. Oh, dude, that's metal as fuck. <laughs> this shouldn't be surprising at all, but of that return we mentioned, uh, one hundred million dollars was in the opening weekend. So imagine what the fall off was. In the
2: <laughs> well, that's because uh, some of the of the Scream two shows were canceled so that they could play Titanic on another screen. There you go. Was <laughs> craving going like Cameron fucked me. <laughs>
1: We mentioned this in the first part and kind of joked about it. It's so obvious, so it's always funny when you read it in text. Scream Two was greenlit while Scream was still playing in theaters. Yeah, no shit. After that first weekend, they were like, "All right, Craven Williamson, you son of a bitch, you're back in it." (laughs) Right, three more. So let's
2: talk about Kevin Williamson. This is really okay. So Williamson and Craven, obviously, but I think that because I've seen other Wes Craven movies. Uh, that are not written in this, they have very little in common when it comes to screenplay, you know, with uh, with this movie. I'm gonna say that this is more of a Kevin Williamson movie, very well directed. uh, uh, The first Scream, you know, Uh, Kevin Williamson movie, screenplay, very well directed by Wes Craven. And then if you like Scream 2, then, you know, it's kind of the same thing. But I, it's one of the things where like, I think that the, I would give it like a fifty fifty as far as like contributions to what people think of when they think of scream, and that is like the the deconstruction of of the horror genre and the the meta aspects of it the the in jokes and the tone and all that stuff. like I think that I think that Kevin Williamson brings that in his screenplay and then they got a director that was like steeped in that genre and he was able to kind of elevate it, you know make it good. and so. I think the high concept of Scream, I'll give the credit to Williamson. And then the really effective stuff in Scream, like uh, the the opening with Drew Barrymore, or like even the opening in this movie, like the, in Scream 2, I think it's pretty, I, I thought it was pretty effective. I'll give that to, to S. Craven, if that makes sense. You know, like there's something pretty horrific about seeing Jada Pinkett Smith bloody, kind of like screaming in front of a theater audience that, Slowly realizes that there's something real happening in front of them.
1: Yeah, uh, that's pretty distressing. That's one of those like horror scenes to me. That like, personally, the older I've gotten, the more disturbing it is.
2: Yeah, so so I think that the way you stage that, I, I you know Williamson could have put it on the page, and that obviously that's a solid start. But then you need somebody like Wes Craven to you know really bring it together. But Craven doesn't strike me as the kind of guy that. You know, would be like as clever with the turn of phrase and all that stuff as as you see, you know, like the way these characters talk and everything. I mean, and we did New Nightmare a while ago, and that movie has certainly something to say about horror and, you know, going meta about that franchise and everything. But I think that Scream definitely takes it up another notch. And I mean, I could be wrong, but I think of it mostly as a Kevin Williams movie directed by Wes Craven instead of a Wes Craven movie written by kevin williamson do you do you ever think about that or are you just like oh that's scream <laughs> i'm not gonna separate the,
1: the elements no i know exactly what you're saying specifically we can apply it to shit we've done because the dialogue in this is exactly the same as in halloween h2o not necessarily with jamie lee curtis but the other characters in the and it is that kevin williamson touch whatever and yeah so i know what you mean i've, I've seen last house on the left at no point in that that I think, <laughs> man, the writing is sharp on this thing. So <laughs> it's I almost think... like
2: uh, it's almost like Craven. What's Craven, is at the mercy of the screenplays that <laughs> yeah. arrive on his desk.
1: Just like, uh, okay. But Julio, what you're referring to, I find that to be so interesting. I find that part of filmmaking to be interesting. I find The Social Network not just to be a great movie, but also interesting because it's david fincher directing an aaron sorkin screenplay you know what i mean and so something like this definitely for the horror genre which i'm a big fan of a dream team so having seen the other shit that wes craven had done up until this point yes it's very clear that the guy who wrote the the, that the screenplay is coming from a very distinct voice and i think it's more interesting specifically again to what we've done in recent memory with h20 that that voice carries to whatever he's doing so to answer your question yeah this did not feel like new nightmare did not feel like the original nightmare on elm street uh and nor was it the hills have eyes last house on the left swamp thing what have you it's uh it makes it interesting for that reason i don't think it's the best one i don't think it holds a candle to the first one come on randy these kids are your friends
2: who do you think's the killer how about Gail Weathers? Gail? A killer? Why not? Well, she is vicious, She's an opportunist. Yes. Isn't it conceivable she's planning her next book? That's what reporters do, Dewey. Do they stage the news.
1: While we discuss the screenwriting, Julio, and the script, uh, I feel it's appropriate to mention that the cast were not informed the identity of the killer until the last day of principal photography. Also, the cast did not receive the last 10 pages of the script until it was time to film the scenes containing therein. Furthermore, the last 10 pages of the shooting script were printed on gray paper in order to deter illicit duplication of them. All So that
2: that bothers me, but keep going.
1: (laughs) All cast members were required to sign confidentiality clauses as part of their respective contracts that precluded them from discussing the outcome of the story and the killer's identity. Now, there are many fabled tales of the script rewrites for Scream 3. Uh, This was obviously not as intensive as that, but with the internet coming in, you got to keep it fresh. You got to (laughs) keep it under wraps. What uh, What's the problem, Julio? Your actor doesn't know how the movie ends? I mean... (laughs) How how is that going to affect anything they're doing,
2: right? I mean, you're telling me that that uh, Timothy Oliphant didn't know he was the killer. Okay, well, seeing how the his performance turned out, I absolutely believe that.
1: Wes, let me let me chat you up real quick. Uh, so where where does Mickey go? Like, what's the what's the end game here?
2: Same thing with Jerry O'Connell. Like, he's playing the entire movie. He's like, well, I guess I might be the killer, so I have to have to give myself a little bit of creepiness <laughs> in case I am the killer.
1: Jerry O'Connell ordered, like, a new floor, and uh, he he got his house re-roofed because he thought he was going to be in part three.
2: (laughs) That's gimmicky filmmaking. Like, I understand the impulse to just try to keep things under wraps, but fuck, as an actor, it would really bother me.
1: That's why I'm always cool with filming multiple endings to a movie. Even if it gets out, no one knows what's going to happen, you know what I mean? Mm. And so... Yeah, being the nerd that I am, and completely siding with you on this, I'd rather something like that happened, uh, to allow the people involved to know what the complete arc is and what you know they're doing here, type thing, as opposed to just worrying if ain't it cool news is going to leak it. So, Scream Two, yet another Wes Craven film in the bag, yet another Scream film in the bag, and part two, the installment of the Friends Stravaganza julio we've discussed this honestly more than i thought we would it's been a good discussion about it so inevitably it turns to what you rate it and (laughs) the cold ratings (laughs) i like i said when i put it on my letterbox today i gave it three stars because it does there's something there at the same time in the context of the scream franchise in the context of horror movies i like i it there's some shortcomings, and I I feel for whatever reason this movie gets this overrating that I I don't really understand it, and I I tried to figure out what where it comes from, but I don't know. Maybe that's a discussion for another day. I give Scream to a C plus. Where does it fall on the Julio scale?
2: Um, I'm gonna land on three stars as well. I I I like this a lot when it started, and then. And I feel like I say this about many horror movies. Like, <laughs> as it went on, it became more and more a horror movie, just a generic horror movie, you know, with characters making dumb decisions and uh, just jump scares. And I don't know, I I prefer it when it's just being a little more intellectual. And uh, even if it can be a little cringy, a little over the top, like, uh, you know, the opening sequence when Omar Epps and Jay Pinkett Smith are just... Openly discussing the tropes of horror movies. Well, look, if you're putting that in the middle of a fairly effective horror sequence, I'm down with that. The problem is when you uh, stop focusing on, on the deconstruction of the horror genre and you give me horror sequences that are not that entertaining. Uh, you know, I don't care about Sydney using the elements of theater to fight back against the. <laughs> God, no. I don't know. It's, it does nothing for me.
1: You know what else I don't care about? Jerry O'Connell singing Nev Campbell.
2: <laughs> Maybe it was a different song.
1: Or, you know, if he could sing or something.
2: <laughs> but yeah, I think that the 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 first the first scream again, I don't remember as much, but I also remember there was a through line that took you from beginning to end. In a journey of uh, kind of uh, showing you what a slasher movie was, but with just this new take, and I feel like Scream Two starts the same way and then it drops off. Like the idea that this is a sequel, like it's it's, it's they kind of like play it up very strongly in the first thirty minutes, maybe forty five minutes, and then it kind of just goes away. The fact that this is a sequel, it stops being important for the for the story. You know, even if it was, I'm not saying that this is what they should have done, but even if Timothy Oliphant at the end, you know, part of his motivation would have had to do with the fact that uh, he's creating the perfect sequel to Billy's crimes or whatever, you know? Yeah. But that's not really what he's doing. He's just like, oh, I just, I come up with the perfect crime because they're going to blame the movies. Okay, well, that has nothing to do with the fact that this was a sequel. <laughs> It's, it's a i don't think that the movie started off as being a commentary on violence in movies or how people perceive violence in movies you know it's just you have stab playing in the background but that's more of a i don't think that that is is uh, important enough in the story to make it relevant at the end so yeah i i just i don't think that this movie follows through with its most interesting ideas and instead it's just kind of generic by the time it gets to the to the end but it has irritating moments i really like jamie kennedy in it i like dewey i like corny cox i, I mean i'm happy that i watched it <laughs> i don't need to watch it again how have you watched this so many times when you're really not crazy about it
1: comes up in october
2: because oh that's right that's yeah It's part of your thing Okay. Yeah.
1: and it's like i remember this was definitely one when, when i was in college i had premium channels like hbo and showtime and shit like that it would just be one of those movies i'd When it was on, I'd put it on. We have different systems for watching movies.
2: Yeah. Uh, Scream 2 is your swim fan. Noted.
1: I'm fine with that.
2: (laughs) All right. Well, that's it. That's three stars for me, C plus for you, and a lot of anger from uh, Eddie Strait and all those people that say that this is the best in the franchise. Sorry. Calls them as we seize them.
1: Save that argument for another rainy day.
2: Now, speaking of another rainy day, Alex, coming up next...
1: (laughs) What is next in the French Travaganza?
2: (laughs) Well, actually, uh, coming up next, uh, our patrons come to the rescue and put a stop, a temporary stop, to the French Travaganza. We have patron Ben from Film Busters, who, as we mentioned, is giving us two episodes of the new Sex and the City uh, show for the patron channel. But for the main feed, he is giving us the movie The Damned United. Which is a British movie, and it's a sports movie, and it stars or features at least uh, Michael Sheen. Uh, that's all I know. Well, that, and it's a uh, it's fresh on the tomato meter. So I guess we're gonna be saying mean things about it on the next episode. Alex, have you ever heard of The Damned United?
1: I have not, but Tom Hooper's the director, so I look forward to taking far too many liberties with him.
2: <laughs> oh, God. I hope that you end up loving this movie.
1: Oh, that would be perfect.
2: <laughs> You'd be so conflicted. Be a
1: perfect uh, inclusion.
2: Yep, yeah, yep. Yeah. So... That's coming up next. Damned United. Also, as we since we're talking about things in the future or things out there that are not on the main feed, I was on Word Salad uh, for a special Mother's Day episode where we talked about uh, our top five movie mothers and our top five TV mothers. Alex, I had Selena Myers on my honorable mentions for the TV moms. She's a she's a terrible mom, but you know, worth mentioning. And then you, Alex, were on a. On a podcast about wrestling.
1: (laughs) Correct. (laughs) If you can believe it. Yeah, the Late Night Grin. Uh, They had me on as part of their Grin Grappler series, which they've only done two episodes of so far, and I've been on both of them. So it could become a regular thing, basically just discussing the career of one particular wrestler at a time. Uh, This last one, we talked about a guy who's in one of my all-time favorite matches, so I just went on at length about it. But we'll be sure to include all that in the description. The episode I was on is on YouTube. Uh, You can check it out for free.
2: So I checked it out. uh, I watched about 20 minutes or so. And it was like I was at work. So, you know, I couldn't, like, just have the whole thing. But, you know, I I started with the hubris of, like, oh, you know, we've done four episodes of Roxena and, you know, (laughs) I, I. I'm sure I'll have an idea of what these guys are talking about. It reminded me of when I'd taken a few French lessons when the, uh, when the pandemic started and lockdown, I signed up Uh for French because I was like, I'm going to learn French while I'm here, not working. And, uh, and I'm like, I think I'm doing okay. And then they hit me with the first like major test and it's just like (laughs) two people speaking in French, like conversationally. And I'm like, I can't pick up a single word. (laughs) And I'm like, oh, wow, I'm not ready yet. And so this was a similar experience where I was hearing you and these other three guys talking about wrestling. And I'm like, I don't know what they're talking about. (laughs) (laughs) I can follow the conversation. I know the words, but they're arranged in ways that I am not familiar with.
1: (laughs) Uh that's awesome. So, yeah.
2: So it was uh but it was very entertaining. And I know that we have listeners that are far more uh versed in the world of wrestling than I am, and uh and even if they aren't, I mean it's still it's entertaining. You get to see Alex wearing some really cool red shades and that alone is worth the price of admission. And the price is go. zero dollars. You just have to click play. So anyway, plenty of Contrarian I'll stuff p- out
1: there. I'll pay you to look at me. <laughs> yes
2: <laughs> so anyway that's it next time it'll be the damn united and then after that we'll be back to the french travaganza with the chandler episode i want to say so they'll be almost heroes until then uh this is it alex
1: take us away all right to go ahead and close this out we're going to move into perennial plugs we start off by giving thanks to the festive years they provide our opening and closing tracks they kick us off with Last Stand, take us home with Summer of 99. Be sure to head over to thefestiveyears.com for any and all Festive Years needs.
2: Our friend and fellow podcaster Hans Rothgeiser, he's the man behind the logo and the graphics on our webpage, on our Patreon page, on our merch page. He's, he's done all those little tomatoes and all those uh, little green splotches on all our pages. Those come from the very talented Hans He's also a novelist. He's written a whole bunch of sci fi novels, fantasy novels, zombie novels. You can check out his work on his webpage, mildemonios.pe. That's M I L D M O N I O S s.pe. Or you can contact him on Twitter at mildemonios or email him, mildemonios at hotmail.com, if you want him to uh, do a logo for you, write a comic for you, or if you want to tell him how cool his podcasts are. He uh, has a uh, podcast about the economy called Varginal and a podcast about Peruvian current affairs called nation combi Hans thank you for all your support
1: and thank you to miss Zoe Perez creator of our social media Zoe does a lot of work for us and we appreciate the effort she puts in uh, if you're on Facebook go to facebook.com slash contrarian prime give us a follow on there Zoe posts some exclusive videos that uh, preview upcoming episodes of ours a lot of times including conversation and trivia that isn't included here So, be sure to go check that out. And if you're on Instagram, you can find us at contrarian prime. On there, Zoe will post uh, images for upcoming movies that we cover, interactive graphics, audio clips, links, the whole kit caboodle. Zoe, thank you so much for the work you continue to do for us. And thank you to you, the listening public, for tuning in to this episode of the contrarians, where we're right and you're wrong, and we will catch you next time.